You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I am Brad Nakunda-Clark. I connect interim talent with NHS leaders, and I am your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. So thank you very much, both of you, for for joining me today. Of course, just to run through the usual introductions. So I'm Brad Nakunda-Clark. I work for Evolution Recruitment Solutions on the NHS Midlands team. Derek, do you just want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Derek Hammond-Piers. I work for Nottingham University Hospitals as the Elective Performance Manager and also Principal Analyst for RTT and Cancer. Go for it, Tendai. Good stuff. Derek sounds like just the guy that I'd like to, to know more about. Really interesting subjects that you cover there, Derek. Uh, my name is Tendai Shumba. I work for Kettering General Hospital. I am the uh, data visualization and analysis lead for KGH. Excellent. If we go to Derek for the, the first question, if you read your question, we'll uh, then go to Tendai for almost his version in terms of an answer of that question. And then Derek, we'll go back to you for, for your thoughts around that as well. Okay, thank you. Uh, it's probably the least technical of all the questions today. Um, but yes, my question is, uh, given the increase in backlogs over almost all uh, measures and metrics, how do you try to obtain the same degree of assurance over your pathway management, data quality, and risk of harm that you'd have had in a pre-COVID era? Well, that's a, a pretty difficult one. Um, I <laughs> <Yeah>. think, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, pre-COVID, we had the, the luxury of time. Um, and of course, before we got hit by COVID, we didn't think we had the luxury of time around that time. Uh, that was because we, we thought that we were busy. We thought that we were, uh, in a sense, uh, always responding to change. Whereas COVID totally knocked us out of the park in terms of how we transact, how we structure our teams, the resourcing need, the tools that we use. So to gain that assurance in such a fast paced world where standards are actually changing constantly has proven to be quite difficult. So the one thing that I, I, I reflect upon is um, how we started making the, uh, the daily COVID CITREPS uh, submissions and how the specification for that changed quite rapidly, quite constantly, and how the systems that we were using to capture that data also changed. So to be able to present a like for like comparison of two points in time where you can gain that assurance that you are doing the right thing and you're making progress, uh, it became really difficult. Uh, the way that I see it, I think change control is, is a big tool towards uh, bringing us closer to getting better assurance because even though the, the landscape might change, the, the technical specifications of what's being collected is and reported on and, and analyzed and, and, and topical in, in in meetings that might might change you know with the need but if there's good change control it's quite easy to explain some of the difference that might uh, actually be coming across as a as a red flag in a sense so i think um as a start there has to be really good change control processes in how we we handle and manipulate data i think in hindsight speaking certainly for myself uh, we didn't do that as well as we, we could have because we didn't anticipate the, the volume of change that was to come. So when we now had to look at um, 
the statistics of people that had hospital acquired infections versus those that didn't at two points in time. Uh, at times it looked like we were slipping or we we're doing really well, but the numbers um, could not be easily believed without a lot of explanation as to the difference in the calculation methodologies. So, so that for me would be uh, the biggest reflection point I, I've, I've had over the last year about how to, 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 to gain um, confidence and, and provide that assurance because the numbers by themselves I don't think are enough. There has to be an element of uh, change control, documented change control that then enables us to, to explain the, the, the rapid change in uh, methodologies of, of reporting. Excellent, Sandai. Derek, do you just want to follow up on that? Yeah, I think, it, again, a lot of this is benefit of hindsight, so we can speak about it, isn't it? But yes, I'd agree, we didn't act or change or modify quickly enough. Because um, I think certainly the first six, eight, ten months, it was hard to know quite what to focus on where, what, what was the biggest problem and everything was a problem. Um, and I think now we're in a place where we have, I suppose, altered almost all of our kind of management and executive oversight and the reporting that provides that. And I suppose it shows that in the pre-COVID years, how I say happy you are with the status quo, but how much assumption you make about what we've got is good enough. And then only when you're really pushed to the wall and then over it, do you really see the gaps that you've got or that I wish we'd had this or if only we'd done that or made this um, configuration decision differently in the past because we didn't think it would matter and now we're in a state because we can't see x within y um, and it, I don't know I suppose we're in a place where people now see more um, informatics um, than ever they've done before and better informatics than they've ever done before but I do wonder how better we'd be now if we'd had that at the beginning or had that as part of our previous normal. Um, it's, it's been quite the stress test, I suppose, of how your 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 analysis, your visualizing, how 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 you see your information within your trust, how that is set up. It's been quite the stress test for that. And I'm sure every trust has found gaps or foibles or problems regarding that. Um, and we're no different. Uh, I suppose some of our problem is that we can work smarter, see better, but our establishment is still essentially the same. And that's where we have a lot of our problems now is we can see the size and scale of backlogs and problems in different areas where there is, you know, we, we can score or out, you know, risk metrics and things like that. We can build in, you know, rag flags to you know how people would prioritize approaching you know their, their reports their booking that sort of thing but there's still only so many fingers on keyboards to do that work and then certainly as you take that forward into the clinical world there's only so many staff to then do the activity at the ultimate end of that yeah. and so i mean now we're in the position where we're people are still coming up with things ways to show things ways to display things ways to innovate that we're actually declining now because we don't have the ability to do anything based on what it would say we've got to really be careful what we're monitoring on i had a elective um ptl that i chaired just before this this afternoon so with our specialty heads 
and you know for adding one more topic onto the agenda there we had to be really careful what we then take off and so we're potentially saying it's good enough for now and um, we'll let it tick along it's 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 tricky it's it's, it's triaging information just like clinicians triage patients and that is it's hard to know if you've made the right call there sometimes Tendai, do you want to follow up on any of that? I was I was going to jump in. Yes, I was good. I think one of the the most uh, just thinking one of the most challenging bits to how we're configured as teams at the moment um, is is that we we've got staff who have worked in a particular way for for so long, you know, within mm -hmm. the NHS, uh, and this COVID challenge presented an opportunity. Uh, or a challenge uh, or a problem to to work completely differently. So if if you think about, if I if I think about it, we had uh, a, a situation where people would get a specification from NHS Digital, for example. You need to build these kinds of data sets and you need to collect them and these are the codes and and all that good stuff. And with COVID, we didn't have the luxury of that and and uh, individual providers trusts had to on the fly build these data flow uh systems and you know the, the architecture of which was left you know to, to our own discretion if we even look at some of the national systems um they could have been better i look at for example the the vaccinations data that we provide to nims and uh, to, to nivs and other systems like that um it was done in you know so quickly it could have been done better, but you know, that's just the, the benefit of, of hindsight. No one knew what we were trying to get ourselves into or out of at the time. Um, when I think about the, the colleagues that I, I've worked with in multiple organizations, um, most of them uh, within within our profession have, have not been uh, the kind to, to try and learn new stuff. They've been the, the the kind who rely on uh, age old wisdom of how we've always done things. And during COVID, that that came short on, on a number of times because it needed people who would be self starters and who would actually do something that is radically different. Think out of the box, you know, Google it if you have to until you get to a to an answer. And I don't think we as an NHS, we have got enough of those kinds of people that are are, are, are of that mindset and that mold. We're quite uh, institutional in our thinking and in, in our behaviours, in our, you know, quite hi hierarchical as well to say, well, you know, uh, Derek is the is the cancer lead. So I, I'll speak to, to Derek. I, I won't try to find the information for myself. I will leave it to somebody else. But we didn't, have the <laughs> <laughs> we, did, we didn't have we didn't have the luxury of time to say I'll wait for for somebody else to come mm -hmm. up with a solution. And we needed people to to really roll up their sleeves and just um uh, uh do do a bit not even your bit but just a bit to keep things moving so so when you touched on the the, the aspect of 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 our teams and our team config uh that that is one of the things that came to mind that um certainly if if we had had uh, a lot a, a people with a, a lot more entrepreneurial spirit uh it might have been a bit chaotic but things would have moved faster and in a more agile way but we we were slow to react because of our institutional culture as an nhs 
yeah, I think exactly. if I think now to a lot of the people we had working in our information teams, our, our sort of default analyst, if you were pre-COVID, and then I think to all the ones we've recruited since and during, they are, yeah, it's it's a different sort of candidate that we do look for now. Whereas before, I think we were quite happy to have people who could handle the churn quite quite fine, you know, just yeah. rinse, repeat, off they go. Because in the old world, that that did the job. Fine, not a problem. But yes, you're right. That That is not the same sort of people who can innovate your way through the problems that COVID brought. And so, yes, our recruitment has been very different in terms of, yeah, how we kind of grasp a candidate, the kind of, uh, yeah, how we kind of intuit what they're, and is, and exactly right, you said the entrepreneurial spirit, there's something about the people being able to do things for themselves that we didn't really, really bother about before because we've got guides, procedures, follow this, do that, you know, copy X, paste Y, refresh. But now, yes, it's it's very much exactly as you say self-starters, people who have got some some news about themselves, um, a bit more driven, not the sort of people who would necessarily come to the NHS before. But I think such is the nature of the problems now. There's actually more that is attractive to them that we wouldn't have had to offer them before. Yeah. And so we're able to recruit and retain them, whereas I don't think we would have done before that have turned up, got on board by copy, paste, refresh and left. Yes. That is that is very true. That is very true. Um, one one of the gifts to the NHS, I guess, of COVID, um, one of the few gifts has been <laughs> has been that it's forced us to think about working digital, uh, working remote, working agile, and and that has definitely brought in a lot more talent that wouldn't naturally have gravitated towards the NHS. I, I've certainly seen it uh, over here at, at Kettering that we've uh, had some fantastic talent that is that is uh, applied from from quite far away simply because there was that opportunity to to work remote for a significant proportion of your contracted hours so so that gave us a little bit more uh boost in terms of the the skill set the skill mix within the team uh and and uh we were a bit more agile in how we could we could rota people because some people actually liked working the weekends and things like that so that gives, gave us a little bit of resilience um the, the 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 downside i guess with uh bringing because uh, we we were fortunate to bring in a number of of really innovative people um in the second half of of covid so the, i think the first half we struggled but when when we got into the second half of of covid um we were able to bring in some some really fantastic people um because of that rapid innovation that was that was there we were able to 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 create and transform things quite quickly, but that also brought about its own uh, a, 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 a governance and assurance challenges, because there's just so much of of, of development uh, and change going on. Managing that change and and standardizing processes and making them sustainable proved to be a challenge, particularly when we brought in uh, people on on a contract basis. Because once they left, there'll be this fantastic piece of of kit they've created, uh, but then there wouldn't have been the the the, the runway to, to be able to pass that on to somebody more substantive to, to take care of. So so again, uh, while we're able to, well, the pyramid had been inverted in a sense, while we were now able to get the numbers out and get them out quickly, um, sustaining, uh, maintaining that environment now became a bit of a challenge. Uh, and so now we're, we're we're retrospectively trying to document a lot of this great stuff that has been done in the second half of COVID. So it's a double-edged sword, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, 
you, you can't win with a clean sheet on this one. You, you, you concede one or two goals and you still try to win. I suppose um, a question to, to both of you to follow up on that. So you, you've both mentioned that almost these entrepreneurial candidates, these fresher breed of candidates have come out since since COVID. Do you think that is due to purely there's more of these people available? Or do you think it's because of a bit of a shift in how the NHS has looked at the recruitment? Have they become more open to receiving those candidates and taking them further along the line? Shall I jump in first on this one? Because uh, I'm actually one of those people. So I, I, I was a private it. sector uh, up until uh, you could say one year and two weeks ago when I then joined Kettering General Hospital and, and I joined the NHS uh, for two reasons, I would say. Three reasons, actually. Uh, the first is I had worked for the NHS before, so I, I kind of knew what I'd be getting myself into uh, if I was to join the NHS again from the private sector. Uh, the second reason was that, um, you know, and this is this is more self-serving than than anything, but the NHS is is one of the safest places to work, and of course, in a in a pandemic when uh, a lot of businesses are are going bust and funding is tight, you will find that the NHS was was expanding as opposed to contracting, so there was a bit of job security there, um, and and definitely my my wife had a lot to say about that. And then, of course, the third and uh, final reason was because of COVID, there is this opportunity to to work remote. So I was able to to interview for quite a lot of roles, uh, you know, uh, across the country that I ordinarily wouldn't have even thought to to apply for. So so all my reasons, uh, in a sense, were as a candidate, were actually self-serving. I hope my boss won't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> you probably will. <laughs> Derek, do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think the whole the the analyst type job is one that is very well suited to working from home. There's there's really very little reason to tie yourself to physical location these days, um, and I do think that has seen us get a type of candidate that we would just never have gotten before. Um, now I'm sure there's other lines of work and other you know, public and private sector that would be able to offer that as well. But yes, I mean, there is something about the NHS is it, it's quite safe as far as an employer goes. And I think if you are a more driven analyst, like certainly I remember being in my past, I like a, I like a good problem to solve. And right now you can, without even needing to go to the interview, you can see that there is something there that is going to be interesting to be involved. COVID is for all its terrible problems, it's incredibly interesting. It really, really is. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed some of the work I've done because of and during it. And I'm sure there's a whole kind of type of mindset out there that probably in the Venn diagram overlaps a lot with the analytical mindset um, that are going to be intrigued by that. But I think there's also something from the trust perspective, having done kind of recruitment pre and during COVID, that I think the trusts sell themselves harder now to the better candidates. I think they can see there's a better quality of candidate out there. And I remember before in pre-COVID years, it was always a bit, uh, if we get them, we get them. If we don't, we don't. We think they're overqualified. They're probably not going to take. Whereas now, I, I've never tried so hard to convince a prospective candidate that this job will be a good job for them. Because you know, before it's, it's very much one way. They're the ones that are trying to convince you. But no, no. These days now, when we see certain candidates, even from on paper, and then certainly you get a grasp within a conversation, probably on teams, but 
Um, yeah, I, I think so. Everything I've been part of, I have tried to sell the job, the role, the trust, the prospects, the the problem solving far. I put far more effort into that than I've ever done or had to do with recruitment before. Because you just see a good candidate, you think, I don't want this one to get away. Whereas before, I think we'd have been a bit, a bit less fair about it. Almost assumed that we wouldn't be able to interest them, knowing that the role probably wouldn't have had enough crunch in there for that sort of mindset. So I think that probably helps a bit as well. Excellent. Tendai, do you have anything else you want to add? Absolutely. Um, just thinking, uh, I, I think the, 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 the other thing that probably has resulted in a, in a few more candidates being interested in the NHS as a place to work uh, is the profile that uh, health intelligence is, is getting because of the pandemic. You know, uh, we're no longer that group of people who's locked up in a cupboard, in a dark <laughs> cupboard somewhere, churning out numbers that nobody reads and nobody's interested in. Um, it, it is now a function that definitely um, is being collaborated with, particularly by our operational colleagues and our management colleagues, because the information is just so important and so high profile. Um, it is the one subject area, COVID, where I have really quickly been able to collaborate with so many different functions within um, the organization. So, so I, I work with with uh, HR at the moment to look at the the, the vaccination um, agenda for our staff, uh, and then I work with uh, our clinical and, and medical uh, leads to look at uh, COVID. The, the prevalence of COVID within our wards, infection prevention and control. Um, so you've, you've got a, a focus on the patient and then you've got a focus also on the staff. You've got HR really interested in your information and support and collaboration. Same thing for our clinical and medical uh, colleagues. And then, of course, you've got the external bodies, the NHS, this, that and the other, X, I, G, D, you name it. They, they, they all want... Uh, a lot of this information. So, so the roles that we have uh, within the, the the analytics and visualization domain, they they've suddenly just become quite high profile. It's a bit mm -hmm. like you know waking up one day and, and realizing that your your Tesla is now everybody's dream. Uh, whereas at one point people would have just said, ah, well, it's it's just a bit of a it's just a bit of a gimmick. It'll pass. But it looks like COVID has definitely strengthened our relationship and uh, exposed us to the wider organization as a stakeholder worth partnering with. Yeah, I mean, healthcare analytics has never been seen so much in, in, as a national platform. I, I have a mug with Chris Whitty's face on it, quite genuinely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's now, yeah, people are minded of it as, yeah, it's a field. Yes. It's, it's a whole world you can work in. And that was, that never happened before. Never, ever happened before. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think just whilst we're we're on that topic, because I think it it leads quite nicely to to one of the questions I was going to ask, mm. um, and I would say, what can the NHS do to craft a specific pathway into data analytics within healthcare? I think I've spoken to a lot of you guys, you know, quite regularly. I've spoken to a lot of you guys across the whole of the UK within the NHS, and there's one theme that always comes out of it, I would say, and it's that somewhere along the line, you all fell into analytics. You didn't necessarily at one point in your career say. I want to go into healthcare analytics. It sort of happened along that journey. And there is very much an absence of a pathway to take people to that. So what can the NHS do more around that? Well, that's that's a big question. Um, 
I, th I think I'll, I'll start with some of the stuff that's already out there, which might be helping towards that, you know, initiative, that agenda. So, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, I actually got um, uh, an email forwarded to me, which was uh, looking at apprenticeships. So there's now a, a master's level uh, degree apprenticeship that people could undertake to look at uh, data science or analytics in general. Uh, and I think we, we didn't really have this before. There was a, an apprenticeship for, 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 for analysts, but I think it was, it, it could have been better. Let's put it that way. It wasn't high profile enough to actually get people quite uh, interested. When I look at some of the, the IT uh, qualifications that, that are out there, you know, the problem with, with analysts is we, we don't really fit within traditional IT and we don't really fit within traditional finance. We, we struggle, we, we struggle somewhere in between where we're the people that are working with the numbers, but it's not really the bound signs with the people that are working with the data warehouses and the databases and doing some scripting, which is a little bit like coding, but it's not really IT hardware or software. It, we're just, we're just in between. Um, certainly, I think some of the, the apprenticeships that are being offered now help because there the, the, the has to be that formalization of a, of a pathway for somebody to actually come into into the field. Uh, there has to be partnering with universities so that you know young minds that are being taught stuff in universities can actually see themselves uh, applying their trade within the NHS. So there's a there's a marketing thing, a marketing uh, angle that, that we really need to push here, where we go and we actually beat the drum in our universities uh, through the apprenticeship providers and things like that, so that young people can see these, uh, can see uh, uh, our profession as, as as a career for life that they can actually try to get uh, into. Excellent. Go on, uh, Derek. Yeah, I did a bit of a nosing round about this one just to make sure I was right on what I knew. Um, and I don't know if it's a thing that Kettering might have been part of, because it's Midlandsy. Um, so it's something that started, I knew of it, as the East Midlands Academic Health Science Network which was kind of a, a body that would uh, deliver training and some support to analysts or aspiring analysts from various healthcare bodies um, that I know a lot of Midlands places did send people to. I did it um, and, and I was on it with people from definitely Lincoln and Derby. I don't know if Kettering fed into it or not. Um, but anyway, I know from there, and it was something that that organisation were trying to work on, which is, I think it does exist now, is something that's called AFA. Um, I don't know if either of you heard of that, but it's the it right, Association of Professional Healthcare Analysts. There we go, APHA. Um, and that's, again, the whole point of that is to kind of more formalise exactly what you're saying, is to make it a, a, a proper profession, not just something people fall into or also do, or is, is what I'm doing analysis? Am I an analyst or am I just a reporter? Or am I, you know, it's, what is an analyst will mean different things to different people um and work i've done in the past at the time i'm sure i thought of as analysis i now look back and think of now nah, i was just pressing copy refresh um but i think after's a good i don't i'm not sure how long it's been going not super long i don't think um but two it's years, sorry two years, two years. yeah so i was thinking it's about pre-covid i seem to remember it being around and about trying to kick it off but the, the concept behind that is so it's 
I suppose it starts with existing healthcare analysts to kind of give them a, a framework. And I know they are they either have or are still working on kind of putting kind of a, a core competency to what um, what should be part of a healthcare analyst's skill set, knowledge set. But then leading on from there is once you've got a profession that is kind of more formally recognized, that's when it helps recruitment, as you say, from universities and the likes, but other people who are that way inclined and or skilled, and that it's not just this kind of odd between the cracks of it's not really ICT it's not quite is it a formal proper field to work in or is it something I'm going to do for a few years before I trot on to something else and I think this supports that concept that no it is a role and is a career potentially within you know information within informatics and yeah I think AFA is a really good idea behind the formalization of that um yeah, yeah, one of our, some of our trust is on their kind of, um, is on their board as one of the executive directors. So I know we've paid a lot of time and effort into trying to make that a thing. I I don't know whether COVID has helped or hindered it. I'm not quite sure. It's probably slowed down work that's going on around it, because if you're an analyst, you've probably had other things to do <laughs> rather than try to just kind of keep building this effort organisation. But certainly it is still there. And I've seen it kind of come back round again, I guess, just before Omicron, really. It's, it felt like things are about to get better for five minutes, didn't it? Um, so I know it came back round, started to come to the forefront a little bit more in things I saw in terms of delivery, reminding our trust analysts that this is the thing that might be useful. And, you know, certainly uh, I've seen them do plenty of kind of courses and groups and, you know, they support a lot of kind of um, innovation, uh, skills training, uh, uh, prompting around things like uh, R and the slightly more what I think of as the kind of more advanced analyst skills um, essentially and it does kind of uh, provide a good support and foundation for those as well as a format for kind of sharing questions uh, what does your trust do it's that learning framework that's what I was looking for so because you can be quite often very singular as an analyst particularly working from home you're just cracking in with your project and if I'm stuck well back to Google then um, whereas this gives you something where it's other people who are going to have dealt with like problems in like scenarios, in like roles. Um, so I think that's a really good concept and again, really useful for making your role feel like a yeah a proper formal role, you know, unlike something you fell into. Like I admit, I, I completely fell into analysis <laughs> <laughs> and then almost fell sort of outwards and upwards on the other side of it. <laughs> well, that's, that's quite interesting. Um... I, I've come across uh, uh, AFA, after uh, the, the analysis. Yeah. Um, see, my worry, there, there was an organization that was there before it. Um, and I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but but it, it kind of died a, a death. Um, and I like the idea of a, of a learning framework. I think where I think this is actually going to struggle to take off is that people can still access the profession without being part of the body. So, so if you look at like uh, accounting, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a trained accountant. That, that's where I started, got bored and, and like you, stumbled uh, my way into, uh, into analysis and, and even better still stumbled my way into the NHS. None of it was, was you know, part of the plan. So, um, what what I've seen is if you're able to get into the profession without uh, that 
bottleneck, if I can call it, you know, that that entry uh, qualification of saying you have been certified by this body as being competent, then people are going to avoid the formal learning routes because they can still make it into the profession. Uh, if you look at accounting, that is one profession where they're quite rigid about about these kinds of things to say you might train on the job, but you can't get promoted until you actually complete a particular learning uh, pathway. Um, it, it's a great incentive for those that actually want to progress because, you know, they they, they can learn new skills and, and uh, make themselves more marketable, not just within their organization, but beyond. But I think unless if we can get um, something actually higher level, uh, I don't know what that would be, it's going to be quite difficult to, to actually create a, a formal um, profession that is that is well recognized, a bit like if you say you want to become a doctor, people know where you're going to work. If you say you want to be a nurse, a therapist, whatever it is, it's quite clear where you fit in within the organization. Uh, but because we, we don't have that formality of um, qualification, it's going to be quite difficult to, to standardize the profession and make it mainstream, I think. And, and, and that's where my concern is that uh, uh, this new uh, organization might not make as great an impact as we need it to, simply because, you know, there'll be people, people like me who, who, who stumble into the job without, you know, any, any, any piece of paper to say you're competent. And then you learn on the job and you just demonstrate your competence on the job without being part of a particular body. So that 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 is something that I think, you know, if there was a bit more collaboration at a really senior level across all the different providers within the NHS, they could come together to to formalize uh, uh, Arthur's position within the the recruitment and development market. So, all the universities, for example, would know that if, if we've got students here who are keen to become analysts in the NHS, they might even get exemptions for some of the, the learning pathways that are there that are being provided by by this uh, uh, organization. A bit like you, you you have within the accounting profession, you know, if, if you've done this, then you get exemptions, you move on to you're already recognized as being level two, level three, level one. So I think it, it needs a, a much bigger push uh, by people who are on uh, a far bigger salary than mine to, you know, at a, at a national level to really uh, take this mainstream and make a lot of young people know about this, this wonderful profession, in my opinion. Derek, is there anything you want to, to add to that? No, I think you're probably not wrong there. You're talking something along the lines of someone making a call that, right, the analysts in our trust now need to become AFA registered so that we can have a confidence about the people that are doing our job and then it becomes part of recruitment and then it becomes exactly as you say a more formally recognized requirement rather than it's a certificate you get and print out and stick to your wall after you've been doing the job for a few years. Uh, I suppose case in point of that is I'm not a member you know yeah I've had the word analyst in my title roughly for 12 years. Excellent um, Tendai I'd like to invite you to, to ask your question now. Okay, uh, so so I'm I'm one of those people who likes to think you know blue sky, uh, the world is great as it was, but we can make it better. So we need to think outside the box. And my question is, um, 
a number of trusts across the country have started to adopt and embed data science tools and techniques. From your anecdotal observations, are NHS health intelligence managers well prepared to enable this adoption of data science? Derek, do you want to come on yeah. to the back of that? So I've been making scribbly notes on this one because it's a great question. Um, I think it's probably one we've even thought about within our organisation before in how do we get things to best work. And it's a tricky one. I'm not sure we've ever cracked it. Um, so let's see if I can kind of get my thoughts in order here. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, my very first sentence I wrote was the people who are kind of delivering this or trying to embed it, uh, in my experience, need to be better salespeople. Um, because there is the element of it's quite easy, I find, for a analyst or someone who would, you know, style themselves as, you know, a senior within the, the information department. It's quite easy for them to be excited about a new tool, a new prospect, be it a, you know, a visualization dashboard method, like, like I'm a click Tableau Power BI, whatever, or a, a statistical method, like, oh, we're, we're going to do a lot of work with R or Python this year or something like that. What, whatever the tool is that they think is going to be incredibly useful, it'd be great we can get this, get some analysts in, make that part of our recruitment, get lots of people skilled in it. And so often that's then where the interest stays, because I think it's really hard the more, I say this, I think the more advanced the, the, the tool or technique, the harder it is to bridge that gap between the information world and any of the other worlds within the hospital. Ironically, I find it tend to be easier actually bridging the gap to clinical than to corporate, because a lot of um, certainly consultants are extraordinarily data savvy. Um, that's something that I've certainly seen through COVID. Some of the, the epidemiologists that I've seen working on make me feel incredibly stupid, which means I'm very pleased to have them working for us doing the work. That's, it's a good sort of feeling stupid. Yeah. Um, but when you get to kind of, I'm not diminishing our managers by this, but you know, the management layer, the corporate layer, the specialty management layer, or your business unit management layer, whatever your terminology is, I think it's a bigger gap then between the world of information and their world where they're just trying to keep the lights on and get patients through the door to do a thing to them to send them home again and you can you can say words to them oh python whatever it is and it's like but yeah but how does this help me treat eight patients on a list instead of seven which yeah. is their kind of be all and end all yeah. and these tools can theoretically work towards delivering that but being able to sell how that is going to happen i think is a very difficult sell and I think it's difficult because very often, I say very often, I'm supposed to speak just from my trust. Certainly in my experience, the information world is often quite siloed from the operational world. And so one side doesn't necessarily understand how the other works or requires or frames its issues or problems. And so when somebody can be you know, perfectly competent, very highly technical, would come up with something. I've seen them stand in front of a room of people trying to demonstrate, let's think, SPC, not the most complicated tool in the world, you know, statistical process control, bit of mass makes a line graph better. Wow, I've seen a whole room of specialty management just kind of tune out and glaze out. Just, you know, you start, you start talking about, you know, uh, Sigma and, uh, you know, the, the maths behind um, how you reach your percentiles. Oh gosh, even percentiles I've seen people thrown with. And if you're not able as your as, as an information salesperson to, I don't want to say dumb it down, but to cater for the terms and possibilities that they're going to understand, 
you're on an absolute hiding to nothing. And you end up, if you're not careful, with money spent on uh, getting an information department that's got all sorts of tools and all sorts of skill sets that go nowhere. And nothing, even if they build something, it's not utilised. I've seen, you know, some very complicated theatre dashboarding, for example. No one uses. They'd much rather use the Excel um, you know, t series of tables that tells them where they're going and what's booked in, because that is good enough, they feel, for what they need it for. Um, and so the more technical skills from what I've seen, it tends to come from information, as I say, trying to sell a thing. Whereas often, if if it followed a bit more, if they were more closely linked to the more operational side of things, they would be better able to deliver solutions that were being asked for or required, rather than solutions that they think might help. But if they're not on someone's, you know, uh, elective steering group agenda of items of things they need to fix, it's just not going to get the time of day, no matter how good or fantastic it is. It's, it's just not even going to survive an inbox, frankly, despite the possibilities of it. When, you know, someone's you know, a top 10 list of requirements are I just need to maximize theater efficiency. I just need to uh, move towards uh, greater telephone appointments, uh, wh whatever it is. There's it's that, that lack of quite being joined up is often, I think, quite problematic. And that you've got the two sides working separately. And if you're lucky, you've got a very kind of narrow field whose Venn diagram spans both sides, which my field currently does. I work in corporate ops. So I and I have been part of information. I have been part of the, kind of the divisions. But, you know, there's only so much kind of one person can do to keep trying to join one side to the other side. Um, I made a note about sort of siloed or embedded. And I don't I don't know there is a, a right or wrong answer to whether it's better to have uh, what would you call them divisional analysts or whether you have information department analysts yeah. your divisional analysts understand the service a hell of a lot better than your average information analyst at least in my trust anyway so but your information analyst tends to have a much better kind of support team around them um, that is where you tend to get the highest skill level because it recruits differently um, and particularly at the moment as with the earlier conversation we had it you know recruits people who are extremely skilled I don't quite know how that gap is best bridged. I've seen both you know, expansion and contraction in terms of centralised teams versus, you know, uh, split teams. I've been part of both. and I'm still not quite sure what works best. Um, generally, I find, yeah, I probably I think I'd get a, a higher degree of skill from my information department, but I'd get better understanding about my question from a divisional analyst. So which one would I go to for an answer on a given thing? Very difficult, I think. So just just to follow up, just as a you know, uh, mm -hmm. you mentioned that the 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 sales pitch needs to be better, or, or actually maybe there just needs to be a sales pitch because they, there is none at the moment when it comes to to selling some of the potential that comes with uh, data scientists or at least mm -hmm. data science students yes. that we, we have or, or candidates that we have. Uh, who should be doing the selling and, and, and who should this selling be done to? Yeah, great question. I mean, the selling's got to start with, I suppose, the information team because they're the ones who have the most knowledge around the tools, techniques, skills, whatever it is. But I don't want to demean analysts as, a, as an entire body of personal skill, um, but they are not the most 
confident individuals in front of a room of people necessarily. You know, they're not there in the operational world put under harsh scrutiny or challenge. They're able to, you know, work squirreled away at home, you know, where they're... Yeah where that doesn't sort of impact them so much. So are they the best salespeople? Probably not. I think it has to start with them, but then I suppose you've got to go through a kind of a more central function, don't you? Like a corporate function, an operations function, whatever your trust would call it, that holds kind of oversight at a, at a trust level, which would be, again, my area where I sit. Um, and I suppose then it's something between them because you've got someone used to dealing with the divisional level as well as someone who understands the more technical level. I was just going to say, um, and really just to understand from both of your sides, do you think the uptake of these data science tools, does that sit at a strategic level? You know, is that you know where this level needs to be? Is that the level that needs to be driving these things forward? Or does it sit more at a, you know, a management level? For me, I think it's more management level. Strategic level, you're happy so long as there are results. And your trust is going in the right direction. You're moving towards recovery. You are focusing on maximising output efficiencies, whatever it is. And I'm not sure they're going to care too much how that's achieved, just so long as you know your lines are heading in the right direction. I, I think it's it's the management level because if they don't adopt whatever you're building, it's utterly pointless. And then all that time spent building your new theatre modelling tool that's designed to replace all the old excels. Uh, great that's your hundreds of man hours in the bin because people just prefer the old and the comfortable because the new and the possibilities of the new haven't been sold to them i mean and heaven forbid if something is delivered and they find a fault in it management are incredibly unforgiving um because suddenly they, they find an error They're, this patient shouldn't be part of this this should be discounted oh then suddenly it, that black mark takes a long time to erase unfortunately um, because because their world is is not the analytical world. Um, it is very very chalk and cheese. So I'm trying to think. Have I got any examples at the moment? Um, I, I I know from our sort of internal information newsletters that we're getting a lot more people with skill in R. There's a lot more kind of R related training sessions that are involved. Some of it's AFA, but others it is just kind of Midlandsy based. Um, so there's a lot more skilling up there. But I couldn't tell you because I'm a slightly more old school analyst. I couldn't tell you what the advantage. That, that would give me is when i've got everything i already need in front of me based on excel i'll double click on that pivot table drill through there's my patience that's all the management need what does anything i'll give them and so that's part of the selling point really it's perhaps easier in a for areas that don't get to divisional management maybe finance things like that work it's it's a lot it's perhaps it's a bit more straightforward there um perhaps that's a bit more of a clear or obvious linkedin information and finance both tend to be very numbers based um, and so you'd think you know, your statistical tools are going to get better understanding there. Um, but you find that's not a world I'm involved in, unfortunately, so I couldn't really say about that. Tendai, we'll go back to you. I, I, I think um, we've got a, a, in my opinion, a massive opportunity and a massive problem. Um, so I, I'll start with uh, uh, an analogy. I love analogies. So if you look at right now, Tesla, it's the second time I'm mentioning Tesla because I love Tesla. If you look at Tesla, the reason why, you know, the VWs and the Mercedes and then all the other petrol engine, you know, the the the, the, the traditional combustion engine um, companies are failing to uh, compete with Tesla, it's because all the staff that they have uh, has knowledge around the combustion engine. There, there's no one there who knows anything about 
the electric motors and, and things like that. So uh, this fantastic new technology is failing to be adopted by the traditional producers, manufacturers, simply because they don't have people with the skills or the mindset to imagine and innovate. Uh, and in a sense, that is how I see the NHS as well, that we, we have a lot of people who uh, know how the world has worked for so long, but unfortunately, uh, they, they don't have the, 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 the skill set to, to manage that pivot away. So, uh, you know, I, I'm a huge advocate. Well, I, I want to be a huge advocate for, for data science because I think it helps us to look into the future uh, with mathematical rigor, uh, okay. where there's a lot of the reporting that's done within the NHS, I find, uh, and the analysis is is looking into the past. You know, yeah. what happened last year and, and why did it happen and blah, blah, blah. But they, there's a lot of opportunity to use data science to actually predict into the future and, and do things that um, make mathematical sense, you know, where somebody might decide to... to um, fill a list, you know, a, a, a booking list for theatres for, for next year based on a hunch. You know, I, I know that, you know, Surgeon Bradley takes annual leave around this time and blah, blah. So I'm just going to put 70% uh, of, of, of his slots, fill 70% and leave the other 30. It's all on, on gut feel. Whereas with uh, data science, there is the opportunity to take out some of that bias that we have as people and have mathematically um, computed suggestions of how we should run our services and and uh, get better value for for money. So, but when I look at a lot of my, a lot of my peers who I would expect to be the ones to be driving this change, and and I totally agree with Derek on this that it's 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 the middle management that really needs to be driving this because this is operational change. We're changing the tools that we that we use even though the goal does not change. The strategic goal is the same. It's the tools that are changing. Um, I, I don't think that we've got enough uh, managers who've got that exposure to data science and its potential. We don't have enough of those kind of managers to be able to actually uh, have the critical mass to, to, to not, not to have a, a revolution, but more of an evolution of of our analytics functions across the NHS. I don't think we've got enough of them. And, and part of this is, I think, because of the way that the NHS works, you know, the, the NHS is, is a bit like an employer for life. So if, if you join it, you know, you're gonna stick around for 25 years for you to make it to a particular band, for example. So, so the people that we have imposed, a lot of them have been around for a long time and might not have had the benefit of experiencing uh, different cultures, different ways of working, different tools and um, uh, different processes uh, that you might get from working in a bank or working in a bakery or, or working in, in many of these different places. So so I, I actually think uh, fr from the few that I know, the few friends that I know who are um, uh, middle to senior managers within uh, uh, health intelligence functions, uh, if I was to go to them and say, what what can you get from Python? They would struggle to really give a convincing response. And therefore, that salesman or that saleswoman who should then be going to your consultants to say, hey, look, we can actually do a bed modeling uh, 
uh, algorithm that tells you how best we should be uh, configuring our wards so that we, we we maximize on our estate. That person can't sell to can't sell to the operational people because he himself needs a salesman to sell this idea to him. And even if he buys into the idea, uh, he doesn't have the, the 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 technical knowledge and know-how to be able to say, how do I actually um, recruit and, and structure this team that will then start to create real benefit? So what we end up having is, is um, individual products that then get created, but they don't make sense because they're not part of a bundle. So, so you you'll have somebody who could do a, a forecasting tool for I don't A and E, for example. What's going to be our our attendance uh, over the winter in terms of winter pressures? And, and they've done this tool, but of course, and it stops there. So, so it might be just a few people within the the emergency department, a few consultants, a few service managers who get to see it and experience it and, and probably use it. But then we forget that there's, there's, you know, there's an entire pathway here where a person who arrives in in A and E is going. There's, there's, there's a statistical chance that they're going to end up being admitted, or discharged, or transferred, and that is a knock-on effect on those other services down the line. So, so they should be already a a, 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 a train of thought to say. If we're going to create something for A&E, then we need to create something for inpatients. We need to create something for for outpatients. We need to to bring that statistical rigor to all the different service lines that we have, so that everybody can see this this benefit, and then everybody can start be can, can start to or, or can can look more towards the future as opposed to to analyzing the past. So 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 I I, I don't think that our current crop of managers has had enough exposure and experience of data science to be the, the people to lead the change. So you'll have these, uh, uh, you know, really bright um, data science students who will come and realize that they cannot be developed, uh, not not because the people that, that are managing them don't want to develop them, but you cannot give what you don't have. So so I, I, I can't train somebody to, you know, uh, I, I can't be the one to help somebody to improve on their Chinese because I, I don't know how to speak Chinese. Much as I might like it as an idea that, yeah, if you've got this this skill, you can do X, Y, and Z. Uh, it becomes really difficult for the manager to to recruit staff, retain staff, uh, grow staff, uh, come up with a, a program of work that will really deliver uh, impactful change that can be uh, shouted about by clinicians all across. So, so I, I you know, it's 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 a it's a double-edged sword in that um, because the NHS offers such great job security and offers, in terms of pay, a progression pathway, uh, and and uh, offers other benefits. You know, like 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 the, the really generous. Um, uh, sick leave, bereavement, and all of that. The people that you find within the NHS, you know, the majority that I know at least, are, are career NHS people who don't have the exposure of the outside world. And 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 that, for me, I think is a problem. So w when I try to recruit now, um, NHS experience for me is, yeah, okay, you've got it, great. Don't really care that much about it because you can learn new stuff and you can teach us new stuff. Um, 
but I, I I think probably there'll be other people who are who would probably like to err on the side of caution by recruiting somebody with with experience, somebody who can do uh, things as they've been done before now and ever shall be. So so I think, um, you know, to, 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 to answer my own question, I don't think that our management layer uh, is equipped with knowledge and experience enough at the moment to be able to to lead that shift from uh, traditional analytics to more of a, a data science um, dependent or driven or uh, reporting environment or, or, or analysis environment, um, I, I don't think it's it's there. But it, it's it's a it's a huge, in my opinion, it's a huge challenge not simply because you, you can't find the staff but but also because the, the people that should be doing the recruitment the nurturing the the program planning the dreaming uh have not had the exposure in this sector before so things like automation that you can do with some of the the data science tools that we have you know uh, mathematical statistical analysis forecasting all of that i think will be lost um simply because we don't have people that have had the exposure or the training in in that sort of area to be able to to bring about mass change anything you want to to add to that derek no i'd say that you hit a fair size nail on the head there because so much recruitment is kind of internal you end up with a just a continual cycling upwards of quite traditional thinking and knowledge you get the benefit of people who know your services um, and they gain more knowledge about their services as they go, but they, but what they don't so much gain is different skills. They're still going up with the same competency, the same technical skill set as they had as a waiting list coordinator, then a service manager, then a specialty general manager. You know, so yes, they they get they're they're broader in terms of what they can do for their service, but they're no better equipped to handle a a modelling tool a band eight A than they were a band, a band four. four. Yeah. Um, one small light I'd say at the end of the tunnel there that I've seen I've seen certainly more in our trust recent history is the recruitments that come through the management graduate trainee schemes um, they are by and large all excellent recruitments and I know I've seen some of their um, some of their kind of courses and they do it they, they actually have to do an, an analytical um, I think six months as, as like doing a, a, an analytical exposure, uh, a placement, which I think is incredibly useful for someone who's going to go on to potentially be managing a specialty or a service. And because immediately for, for me, that puts them at a massive advantage above someone who has been, who has traditionally climbed the tree, because I know I can have a whole different sort of level of conversation with them about, you know, about information about what is potential uh, what potentially we can do with the data to our that we've got at our hands you know they're the sorts of people i could quite easily work with information to sell on a theater modeling tool um hey even better if they ended up joining the theaters team brilliant i've got almost a ready-made convert straight away instead of the person who's been there for 20 years and started as a porter or whatever it was um but i have been incredibly impressed by I think all of the management graduate trainees that I've seen in the last two, three years, particularly, um, they've got an excellent degree of skills. So 
as and when we get more people like that or they become even more senior that's the sort of thing i think that would really that really then benefit the information areas as they're trying to sell something that is shock horror slightly more advanced than excel Tendai, anything you want to add to that uh yeah so so i'd actually not thought about the angle that that you came in with there derek about uh, a lot of internal uh mm-hmm. recruit recruitment because uh, i i just thought about you know because uh, all my recruitment normally is external I, I just you know go out there and you find that there'll be a lot of applicants from other nhs trusts who then try to to come in um one of the interesting observations that i've made um recently or two things that the first is as kettering general hospital uh and and now we we are in in partnership with northampton when our university hospitals northamptonshire uh we're working a lot more with the local universities to actually offer a uh employment uh as a one-year placement to um some master students that are doing um data science uh master's degrees and this has forced me and and others in my position i guess within these two organizations um to to start conversing with some of the professors at these universities and say actually uh i'll hold my hands up i have no idea what this is about can you tell me uh some of the use cases that are there for uh, uh, uh you know the, the random forests or, or monte carlo modeling or, or something like that and then they would explain how it's used in in in, in insurance companies for example and you think all oh, right okay I, I can kind of understand that from a layman's perspective and I can see how the, that can be applied to, um, you know, uh, any attendances or outpatient appointments and looking at DNAs or, or things like that. And, and and from there, we've been able to offer these students that room to apply these skills to our data sets uh, and create things that are actually useful for us as an organization. Um, so So that's that that's one one thing that I've I've you know we've done we we've started working a bit more with 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 students in particular and also making ourselves students uh, of these professors and these lecturers at these universities so that they can they can guide me as a manager and then I can try to then carve out some um, conducive workspace for 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 someone with these skills uh, so that's that's been the the, the, the first one uh, and then the second one. That I was going to say when you when you mentioned uh, a lot of the internal progression and promotion and so forth is um, uh, my observation of that over the last year has been that uh, advertising external externally or external to the organization uh, has resulted in us getting a lot of high caliber candidates uh, from outside of our organization outside of the NHS and actually outside of the country. So mm-hmm. we've had some absolutely fantastic candidates. Uh, I remember there was um, there were two interviews that, that we actually had. Um, not for, well, yeah, one of them was not for, for, for a data science related uh, uh, role. It was more of data warehousing, but we had a number of candidates from, from India, for example, who were absolutely fantastic, where you'd actually see uh, that from their their technical know-how and experience they will just come and blow everybody out of the water 
but if we had only stayed quite insular and, and looked at the pool of candidates that we have within the NHS, people with NHS experience or people within our organization, we would get more of, uh, you know, the safe pair of hands that we've we've always had. Uh, so so I've seen on, on, on one of the roles, I think I, I interviewed uh, a candidate that was working for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees in Guatemala. Uh, and he wasn't even from Guatemala. He was just working in Guatemala as a as a data expert, you know, and and and, and he articulated how he was trying to manage this really fluid data set for, for refugees who don't have ID cards and you don't really have uh, systems. And it was really complicated and how he was able to start modeling, you know, to, to the, the, the trying to predict the level of, of need uh, in terms of food food aid needs that would be, you know, depending on what's happening in, in another country and the, the migration statistics and really interesting stuff. Uh, <clears throat> this was a, a guy in Guatemala. Then, of course, I had people from India. And I, I guess um, what I then noticed is, particularly in university hospitals in Northamptonshire, they, they, there's quite that open, um, embracive uh, culture of saying we will try to get the best talent from wherever uh, it is, but in some of the organisations that I've worked before in the in the past, when you actually get to the point of trying to to bring in this talent, uh, you also have people who are not within health intelligence, uh, who are maybe within HR, who don't yet subscribe to this idea of bringing in talent from in quotes wherever they are. So getting things like certificates or sponsorship to bring the the person in would end up, you know, being a bit of a uh, a long-winded thing that you'd end up losing the candidates and you'd end up losing these this fantastic talent that you can you can have. So I guess there's a there's an element there about uh, health intelligence uh, analysts or the analysis profession uh, needing uh, greater collaboration and support from particularly from our HR colleagues because. Um, they can help us to tap into some of the, the the talent pools that are not traditionally or predominantly uh, NHS. So, so apart from just knowing about the tech and what you can do with it and selling it to clinical ops, there's also this idea that you know we need to to collaborate better with our workforce and HR colleagues to be able to bring in that that absolutely fantastic talent. If we're doing it with doctors you know, consultant doctors, junior doctors, nurses, you name it. Why can't we do that with with people of a an analytical uh, uh, profession is is would be the thought that I'd I'd have there. And, and I think if, if we as managers can get to that point where we we can we can think along those lines, we might actually be able to bring a lot more people on board from wherever they may be, you know, be it. They're working in in Belgium. They're working in Belarus. They're working in Bolton. You name it. We should be able to bring them on. Derek, anything you you want to add to that? Uh, just to concur, I think I, I I would probably have said that yes. In my past, in, in previous recruitment, I'd have been someone who would have fallen into the trap of traditional thinking regarding recruitment. I want some. Oh, they they've worked in the NHS. Oh, thank God, they'll know some terms and terminologies. Right, that's a step up above someone else from somewhere else. Um, but I definitely would say this last two years have been, yeah, have co quite correctly challenged that very default mindset, I think, where 
it's you're looking yeah putting the more appropriate weight on the skills and capabilities of the individual and how they've gotten them in whatever industry it's just where they've gotten them and so yes in, in my recent think about the recent year and a half or so recruited someone who was a petrochemical engineer um recruited a, a very technically skilled uh, data scientist um as an analyst she was from india working in france via germany um and did that all at distance um and and it, yeah it's a whole different sort of degree of skill set that you then get whereas if i'd just gone the safe pair of hands someone with a bit of energy ex experience because they worked at I don't know, Nottinghamshire Mental Health Trust down the road or something like that. Oh, great. They know what ophthalmology means. It means eyes. Brilliant. But, you know, the technical skill would have been a whole degree lower, if not several. Um, and what I've done is I'd have recruited a fine reporter, but not a very good analyst. Um, and so, yes, I, I'm, I'm pleased to have been challenged by that and to have come out of it, yes, with a much more a broader mindset um exactly like tendai's i think is where i am now uh and i think generally our whole kind of information team so all the recent recruitments i've seen there are very much that same mindset as well it's about the skills wherever they come from is wherever they come from we've got to be confident in our ability to train a member of staff in whatever gaps they have of course we should yeah it's a bit harder at distance tough we've got to deal with it world we're in now yes. but yeah i just don't see that happening in the same way within the kind of the, the specialties of the trust where it is still i think very much internal next band internal next i wait my turn person above me moved on right we're all going to apply for that one of us will get it and <laughs> I, i'm not sure you've gained as much by that as you would have been bringing in someone with complete fresh skills yeah 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 um i guess it, it brings me back to brad's question um because I've, I've just had a a thought there um if if we end up with a, an association of you know uh, you know professional healthcare analysts um should it just be focused on healthcare because one of the reasons why healthcare analysts stick around the healthcare analysis uh circles is because they've got nowhere else to go you 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 can't really see yourself going to work for uh, a bp or a shell um Whereas you've got, you know, these petrochemical engineers wanting to actually come in to the NHS. Um, and I guess th th this might not be one for us to, to answer. It might be for for the uh, the people that are uh, uh, running AFA. But uh, sh should it actually just be healthcare analysts or should it just be uh, professional analysts where we we start looking at how we can develop people to be able to work in any organization um, as an analyst, that that way we actually have uh, a greater pool of opportunities for analysts where you know that you can apply uh, to the NHS for a, an analyst position or you can apply to a bank or, 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 or to a butcher's or, or whatever. You know, I, I, I've i worked for Morrison's, the supermarkets as an analyst and an engineering company and um, uh, back of war, the food manufacturing company. Uh, now the NHS, I've worked for a, a charity uh, that, that did a lot of training. But when I when I speak to my uh, traditionally out and out NHS colleagues, they, they would um, give me a list of the different NHS providers they've worked for, but they've not had the chance. So so it looks like the, the analysts who are on the outside 
have a greater chance of of getting into the NHS than than there is of those in the NHS uh, finding opportunities outside of it. So if, if we are to have that greater diversity of skill uh, and resource, maybe it's not just about training the, the NHS analysts to be to become better and to have a more formal route. Maybe it's actually opening the doors and the windows to fight to to offer them a way out. And, and that way out might actually be also a way for others to come in. And then we've got that greater diversity of uh, that fluidity of movement uh, of people, uh, of analysts into and out of the NHS. Just to, to follow up on that, Tendai, I think, but how often do we see in these, you know, these track adverts or these NHS jobs adverts, NHS experience essential, you know, how often is that? almost a mandatory requirement and that I think really does need to change if some of this private sector talent is going to be you know considered in the NHS and actually then taken into the NHS it's got to change um I think we were we we're obviously a little bit concerned about um making the full one out we've actually managed to to probably do a record time of, in terms of the podcast length so this has actually gone on for for much longer um are there any points that you wanted to to add in terms of that Derek at all as a final point no, I think that's a perfectly reasonable idea. If you're an analyst, you're an analyst. You've got the skills that you've got. Um, and yeah, there's no there's no room to recruit more if there's not movement in the workforce. You're stuck with whatever you've got until you're waiting for Jeff, the analyst, to retire or fall down the stairs, aren't you? Which then creates its own uh, bottleneck. Um, so yeah, so I think yeah, most I I rarely see analysts leave. Thinking about it, yeah, very rarely. And as a, a closing question, guys, courtesy of Mike Emery from, from Herefordshire and Worcestershire, who wants me to ask this to every single leader in the NHS. Um, so what was your favourite soft cuddly toy when you were young? Well, I know my one because, um, yeah, it's one I had for a very long time. Its name was Dogfog and it was um, with Andrex toilet rolls you could send off. I think like coupons from the back of the packets and you sent off however many it was you would get a small uh, Labrador cuddly toy and so I had well I thought I had one of them throughout my childhood it turns out I'll speak to my mum I had like a dozen of them throughout my childhood as one would get absolutely trashed but she'd always have another one in the works slightly pre-distressed so that she could cycle <laughs> so I didn't have one ratty toy for a decade I had a sequence of them so that that's what I had. Tendai? Oh boy, uh, interesting question. Well, I, I, I'm an outlier on this because I actually didn't have any cuddly toys. Uh, that's not because I'm, I'm trying to, to conceal information. Uh, I, I was born and raised and, and grew up uh, for for half my life in, in Zimbabwe, where unfortunately we didn't have um, uh, the, the, the financial resources to, to get ourselves, you know, cuddly toys the times that I was young. So, uh, boy. But if I was if I was to have a cuddly toy, you know, in hindsight, if I would have had a cuddly toy, I think I'd have probably loved a toy dinosaur. Excellent. Yeah, and that's, I think that's a, a really nice little anecdote, really, that you've given the, the tender and a testament from the, the journey that you've come from you know, from start to finish as well. So well done. Thank you. Um, Excellent questions and excellent answers, guys. That went on for, for quite a while, purely because of how much we were all enjoying getting involved with it. So first of all, thank you very much for, for setting the time aside to, to get involved. Yeah, massive thanks. It was, a, it was great to, to sit and, and speak about the topics that we did. It was excellent.
I hope you enjoyed it too. Fantastic, fantastic. No, thanks for uh, pulling us together. You know, if it wasn't for you, I'd have not met Derek here. Exactly. <laughs> Derek, exactly. Lamb. 